0: I like that idea that the kids get to stay in because usually all the kids get dismissed right before I speak. <laughs> and I like being able to speak to the young people. Well, I woke up real early this morning and I don't—I can't even remember a Sunday where I was more excited about the Lord's Day than today. And the goodness of God... And his blessing on our lives, and the wonderful opportunity to be here and to be a part of this church. God is a great God, and He is He is good, and we behold Him in His greatness, in His goodness, and His sovereign wisdom. And I just want to say to you as a church family, thank you for inviting us to come and be a part of what God's doing at Valley. Uh, I am more excited about the future than ever in my life. I think Diane, uh, the same. We just, it's amazing what the Lord has been doing. Last spring, I was invited to speak at the Rocky Mountain Youth Conference over at the Weston And Mike had invited me for that. And, of course, I always look forward to coming back. We've, we've followed the church since the beginning, talking on the phone and praying and just saying, wow, God's just doing amazing things at Valley. And so I preached for that conference, and then Mike said, would you be willing to stay over on Easter Sunday and preach? I said, wow, I'd love to. And I sat back in the back during the worship time, and my, my eyes are all filled with tears. And I'm thinking, wow, God is doing something great here. And I thought I had this thought, I'd love to be a part of something like this. <laughs> but never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I'd be leaving my past work or moving anywhere or that would ever be a possibility. And this summer, the middle of June, God made it clear that he was going to transition us. It was just very clear for the Lord. I knew that. But He didn't tell us yet where we're going. But it's, it's kind of exciting having your feet suspended in midair. <laughs> because you think, wow, we're in a place now where we're empty nesters. Kids are grown and gone. We're madly in love with each other. We, and we're just excited. What is God going to do? Where is He going to lead us? We can go anywhere in the world. And the first two calls were from China and the Philippines. <laughs> And of course, we're willing, Lord, to go anywhere, but uh, that's pretty far from the grandkids. And, uh, well, we just thought, we just want to be open to what the Lord has. And Mike and I were talking on the phone just about ministry here and he said, have you ever thought about coming back to Colorado? I said, no, i no, probably probably never come back to Colorado. <laughs> well, God is amazing and He is good. And we are so thrilled to be a part of this. If any of you have been through Experiencing God by Henry, with Henry Blackaby, he makes an incredible statement in there. He says, when, when you're looking to be a part of a church or be a part of a membership, go find out where God's at work and join it, And go join Him. And I thought, that's exactly what we've done. We see God at work in tremendous ways here in this church, and we get to come be a part of it. And uh, so I don't want to spend too much time in an in introduction, but uh, Mike, Diana, we love you so much. Of course, we love many of you that we've known, but uh, so glad to be here. Thank you for for everything. Philippians chapter one. If you turn to your Bibles, to Paul, one of Paul's epistles, thirteen that he wrote out of the twenty-seven New Testament books that we have today, the inspired, inerrant Word of God that is more relevant than this morning's newspaper. And you may ask, why Philippians? Well, one, I love Paul's doctrine. He gives you meat. He gives you substance. He gives you places you can go in the Word and say, this is what the Bible says. And this is God's Word. And he is very good as, as a teacher, as a, as a theologian with doctrine. It's also amazingly practical. In fact, we talk about, is this relevant for me? It, this book is going to hit us right where we live. You notice the mountains this morning? Get up, you look at those mountains. And I thought, oh, it is so good to be home. But we live in the valley. And we're at Valley Community. We live in the valley. And Paul, writing this letter, was writing from prison so he knows the reality of life it's intensely practical and it's also from paul confessional which i i use the word confessional because it is born out of his own life's experience this is what i'm learning i want you to join me in the process of what i'm learning and i hope that anytime we're speaking teaching small groups that the ministry of god's word is doctrinal it is practical And it is confessional. In other words, this is what God is teaching. As Paul, uh, later on in chapter 4, he says, I've learned these things, or I'm in the process of learning these things. And over the last number of months, Philippians has been a mainstay for me. I would, when I go through a difficult time, I'll read Philippians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8, and Psalm 139. uh, Tremendous, tremendous uh, words from the Lord. So we'll begin reading, and we're going to read the first three verses of, of, the, of the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may wonder, do you mean he's going to preach on an introduction? (laughs) Well, in a way, I'm kind of, we're getting introduced today. We're also getting introduced to Paul. We're getting introduced to his letter. And if I were to stand up here and say, okay, hi, my name is Matt. This is Diane. And um, hello to all of you people at Valley. Greetings. Well, how exciting is that? We've not even got to what this is about, but... I find this is amazingly exciting because how Paul describes himself, how he addresses these members of the church at Philippi, and then the words he chooses to use for his greeting all have weight and mean something. And so we'll dive in next Sunday into the theme, the grand theme of Philippians as an overview. But this introduction, to me, I find is really fascinating. So if I were to introduce myself to you, hi, my name is Matt, and tell you something about myself, I would try to pick out something that would uh, make me look good, sound good, because image and perception is important to all of us. We do care about how people think. You can say, I don't care how people think, but we do care about how people think, and we think about: Do I have a business card? Of course, I never carry business cards. And, and, uh, but you say on there: Does it say my title, or um, that I, or my degrees that I have in my education, or what I've accomplished? And so, how I would describe myself to you is how I want you to know me. It would be a self-description. Um, it could be my role in life, my role in the church. It could be the title, it could be a degree, it could be a background. And Paul chooses a word here that to me is is unusual. Maybe not for in in your hearing, but it is unusual because when he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The Greek word is doulos, and and it, it doesn't... It's not really translated servant. A literal translation would be slave. Slave is not a popular word. It has a lot of baggage. In fact, it's had baggage in every society through all of the ages. Slave has baggage. Slavery has baggage in in the United States. Now, servant sounds pretty good. I am here. I am at your service. And I say, everybody wants to be a servant until you're treated like one. But slavery is not... Popular. So why would Paul say doulos? In fact, any of you familiar with the Air Force Academy? What do do they call freshmen? Doulies. They get the same, uh, from the same word, the Greek word uh, doulos, doulos. And you know how freshmen uh, are treated at the Air Force Academy? Uh, They shine the shoes of all the upperclassmen, do uh, whatever they want. This is his self-description. He is describing himself as a slave. Now, almost in the Roman Empire, almost one out of every four people was a slave. You have some that are very poor, some that were even professional people. But a slave is a person who doesn't have his own rights. He doesn't have his own, uh, he may have a few things in possession, but, but basically he is doing the bidding or doing the will of someone else. And so this is how he describes himself. Now, it's not unusual when you look at chapter 2, and in verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And it's the same word, doulos, slave. Jesus Christ, God, King of kings, Lord of lords, He is God, humbles Himself and comes down onto this earth in humanity as a doulos. And what does He do? He lays down His life and dies for our sins to give us eternal life. And Paul says, let this mindset, let the way of thinking be in you, believers, that he's speaking to in Philippi. So, this is his self-identity. And there are several ways that you could become a slave. You could be conquered. Your nation could have been conquered. Your city conquered. And you were taken into slavery. It could be that you were arrested, that you committed some crime, and rather than going to prison or to jail, you become a slave. You could also be in financial debt, and there's no way that you can pay it back, and either by against your will or according to your will become a servant until the debt is paid off. But this word slave or bond servant, some of your translations may say bond servant, really is going back to something that happened years and years ago in Jewish custom. And uh, you don't need to turn there, but I'll, I'll turn here to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15 and verse 16. It says, But if your servant or slave says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family, he loves you and your family as well and is well off with you, then take an all. You know what an all is? An all is like a screwdriver that's really, really pointy at the end, and it hurts. (laughs) And he says, take the awl and push it through his earlobe into the door. Does that sound like fun? (laughs) And he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Now, some of you wondered, how is it that guys that got pierced ear. Now, what does that mean? Remember when the earrings would come out, guys were an earring. You know, if it's on the right side, that means on the left side. That's what this means. I'll tell you what it means right here. <laughs> I don't know if that's the intent with everyone that has an earring, but here's what happened when the slave says, you know what? I love my master. He's good to me. I love being in this house. I love his family. They've been so good to me. And you know what? Now that I've Paid off my debt, or the time is up. The seven years has come. When it's all completed, now I want this to be permanent. And so, there's a mark that is put on that slave that he is his servant forever, and it's and it's out of love. Now, this is what Paul is referring to. He's not conquered nation. It's not he's a criminal. It's not that he's got some debt to pay, but that he willingly has chosen to be that kind of slave. Now, most of us are not going to describe ourselves as servants or slaves. But this is the mindset that Paul says we should have just like Christ. This mindset. Not patting myself on the back. Now, Paul could have used a number of other terms. And describing himself, he could have said, "Paul, I'm a Roman citizen," and a Roman citizen meant something. You were protected, you were privileged, and it was very difficult to become a Roman citizen, because Rome was the center of power, uh, ruling all of the known earth pretty much. And and to become a Roman citizen who had tremendous value and prestige. He could have said. I'm a businessman and um, from Tarsus, and my family makes the very well-known black tents of Tarsus. They came from the, the black goats in the mountains of Tarsus. And, and so Paul was a, came from a family that was well-off. They were business people. Later on, describes how he'd make tents. He could have described himself as a Pharisee, because we learn from his other writings, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He could have puffed his chest out and said that, you know, that I'm a Pharisee, I'm a ruler, I'm a very religious man. Not just a business owner and a Roman citizen. Or he could have said, Ah, I am an apostle. An apostle. There weren't very many apostles. To be an apostle, you had to have been with Jesus and you had to have been commissioned by Jesus himself. And that happened with Paul. Uh, When Paul was on the road to Damascus. So he could have used those, but he describes himself as a slave. And what you're going to see is, this is what he makes a lot about in Philippians. Over 50 times he names Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. Who's the master? (laughs) It's Christ. It's where he is pointing all of this. So this is how, and we'll learn more about Paul as we go along, because He's a biographical writer. As I said, he's a confessional writer. he tell you all about his life. But this is how he introduces himself. And I wonder sometimes, how do I want people to see me? How do I, when, when someone says, well, what do you do for a living? Or what's your role? You know, immediately, the way I am, I want to try to make something sound good <laughs> to make me look good. But it's just the opposite, the way Christ is and the Apostle Paul. Now, he makes mention... Immediately, Paul and, who's the other guy? Timothy. Now, Timothy was not a co-author, but he was Paul's companion. Why does he put him in there? Because everywhere Paul went, he had companions. If I were to come up, if I did today, introduce myself to you, I would say Matt and Diane because we do everything together. In fact, when I finally was in the middle of the summer, not going into work, I was making her really nervous. She said, are you going to be around home all the time? <laughs> and uh, so, actually, I think the last several months have been the best months of our whole lives. We Every day we've been together. We could do everything. And she said, well, you're going to leave? You're going to be gone for time? I said, we got to get over this because sometimes we've got to go places. But it would describe that, you know, we just go together, Matt and Diane. And Paul is, is not a married man. We're not, we don't really know if he had been married, his wife passed away, or, or what had taken place. But, and, and I love this part, because even though it's just the, you know, Paul and Timothy, what does that mean? It means that Paul was constantly discipling. In other words, he was mentoring. He was pouring himself into others. And, you know, you can talk about his tremendous preaching and teaching and his standing up and arguing with the philosophers of the day and the religious leaders of the day, the way that he could write uh, these letters. He's so articulate. But I really believe that the the great and lasting contribution that Paul made was in the lives of people. He got one guy, not Paul and 3,000 people that are following me. No, one young man, Timothy. Now, Paul is probably now in his early 60s. When he was probably in his 40s, he passed through central part of Turkey into Derby and Lystra, and there was a, probably a, in his late teens at the time, Timothy, when Timothy came to Christ. And on his second journey through that area, Paul invited him to come along. Have you ever talked about how do you mentor someone? If someone said to you, okay, here's a young man or a young woman, I want you to disciple them or to mentor them, I would immediately feel like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? I need to uh, find a book, a program. We've got to meet every week and do this. To be honest with you, I, I, I feel intimidated by that a lot of times because there are a certain level of expectations. But I think the model that of mentoring that Paul uses and that Christ uses, and that I hope that everyone at Valley gets instilled in your mind. All you've got to do is say to someone, hop in the car, or let's go Let's go together. Take someone with you. Don't do everything alone. And then what do we talk about? You talk about everything. You talk about the problems, the difficulties, and the trials. You talk about what you read that morning, what you're learning, how you blew it last week how you doubt doubted God, how you're questioning things, how you struggle in your heart over the goodness of God. You talk about everything. And, and what we find with, with Christ is He would stop and teach and stop and mentor and pour into people. And, and so discipleship and mentoring simply is you keep growing in Christ. Keep it real. Keep it transparent. Be honest. And bring other people along with you. It's a journey that we share together. And I have found this, that the greatest times of learning and development are when we really hit difficulties. When life is going on well, there are no problems, we're not growing a lot. But when what we say we believe is tested as a church and as individuals, we need help to work through it because we're not feeling that way, though we're feeling the way that we should. So I, I love this, and, I, and I, I think when you look at uh, the church in Philippi, Paul had Silas with him, he had Luke, who was a physician, and he had Timothy with him when he had first visited these people. And so mentoring is something all of us can do. If you became a Christian last week, you're in the process, you're growing, you're, you're mentoring, you can show other people the way. This is his companion. Now, there's a lot of backstory on the audience because he says Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, are slaves of Christ Jesus. And then now we're going to get into who, the, who this is addressed to. So if I were to say Matt and Diane to the folks at Valley Community Church, he is saying Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, he said to those of you at Philippi. And he calls them holy people or saints. Now, We'll we'll dive back into a little bit of how this church even got started. It's a, it's an interesting story. In fact, the three the, the first three members were a businesswoman, and then a Roman soldier, probably a retired Roman soldier, who was a jailer, and then a demon possessed girl. Those were the people that started that church. The Apostle Paul had traveled. To this city, on his second missionary journey, and some of you that have read through the Book of Acts, you'll you'll remember that he was heading in one direction, and there was what they call a Macedonian vision, where Paul had this vision at night of a man saying, "Come over and help us." And when he traveled over to Philippi, it was the first time that the gospel had gone into Europe. You see that uh, even the country of Turkey now is split. It's where Asia will hit Europe. And and this is the very first time the gospel gets into Europe. And Paul was wanting to take the gospel west. Philippi is, a, is an amazing city. It was first founded by Philip of Macedon. That's Alexander the Great's father. Um, big gold rush there. And uh, Alexander the Great there was a, the... It was right along the main road, Ignatius Way, that went Ignatian Way, that went all the way over to the city of Rome. So it was a thoroughly traveled place, and then it was a Roman colony, which meant they, when they'd make a Roman colony, they'd take about three hundred soldiers and their families and just put them there, and they say change the culture. We want this to be a Roman colony. So it was it was a very strategic type of city. And uh, it wasn't very religious because there was no synagogue. We know that because Paul had to on looking for that and then finally found these people down by the river because believers would go down by the river to worship. Well, this is where this church began. And of all of the churches that Paul will speak to, I think this is the most intimate and the most uh, personal. These people loved Paul and they cared for him. And he you'll see it when he writes. He said, you know, when no one else was helping me out, you were helping me out. And he, and he loves these people dearly. In fact, uh, when, when he's, he says in verse 7, we'll get down to this uh, in the future, but he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. You people are in my heart and I love you. And and so there is a tremendous relationship with this little church in a Roman colony, and they're, they're now sending assistance to help him while he's in prison in Rome. Okay, I don't want to get too much backstory to bore you, but, to, but we have to have context of, of what we're doing this way. But what does he call them? He called himself a doulos, a slave. That's not my self-identity. And he calls them holy ones. Now, what if someone called you saint or holy one. Would you feel a little awkward? Your kids would probably feel pretty awkward if your parents called you a saint. Uh, you're a holy one. <laughs> so I'll have to take that back later today. <clears throat> holy. Wow. How many of you really feel holy? I mean, just how you feel. But this is how he describes these people. So, in the King James Version, some of the older versions, will use the word saint. And we think of a saint as someone who is uh, was really good and immortalized. And, uh, you know, St. Mark or St. John or uh, the name of St. Uh, Andrew, they, they name a church or something after that person. So, saint. But what the terminology in the New Testament is that any person who is a Christian is a saint. Anyone who has put their faith and trust and is a believer in Christ is a saint, is a holy one. The word is uh, hagios, hagias, and it means to set apart or to to separate, to to pull and make apart. And so this is exactly what Christ does for us as salvation. He makes us holy. And and I think that when that term is used, we ought to would examine it just a little bit. What do, what do you mean, how holy are you? And there are three dimensions that I would say of holiness. If I were to say, am, you say, Matt, are you holy? Uh, <laughs> I would need to qualify it a little bit. <clears throat> if someone asked you after church, are you holy? You'd probably pause a little bit. And, well, I need to explain a little bit. So let me explain a little bit. First of all, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus Christ made you holy. In other words, when you came into this world, and you all know this about yourself, from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot, there's nothing good in you. Nothing. You are a sinner. And, and you're, a, you're a sinner because, one, your parents were sinners, so you're born a sinner. And two, is because you've made choices, sinful choices. So you're permeated with sin. And what makes it more difficult is there's is nothing you can do about changing that. And what is the consequence of sin? Well, the Bible tells us the wages or the consequence of sin is death. When Adam and Eve sinned, it put the whole world into a death spiral. So not only am I a sinner, but I am incapable of changing that fact If I murdered someone, and then for the next 50 years I did nice things to people every day, it doesn't change the fact that I'm a murderer. So, you are a sinner, and there's nothing you can do about it. But that's when we read chapter 2, when Jesus came down upon the earth. Here He is coming down upon the earth, and He's perfect, and He's holy, and He's God. And He takes on your sin upon himself and is crucified and pays the penalty of that sin. And there's something amazing that happens. A lot of us think, well, yeah, Jesus took all of my sin upon him, died on the cross for my sins. But in 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, it says, And he then imputed or credited to your account his own righteousness. So, <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. Not only did He take away all my sin by dying on the cross, He imputed or or gave to me His righteousness. So from the crown of my head to the sole of my foot, I'm holy, I'm pure, I'm clean. And He has declared it, and it's forever, and I'm secure, and I am His. So in that sense, I am holy. Isn't that amazing? And... The roughest day you have, and all the problems you may face, and and everything in life going wrong, you know you are His, and you are forgiven, cleansed, washed away, all of this sin is gone. I'm a child of God. I am holy. I am a saint. So that's one dimension. The second dimension is what we call growth. When you start growing as a Christian, you know the, the fact is we still live in a fallen world. You notice that? Kind of hard to notice in Colorado, but we live in a fallen world. I live in a fallen body. Okay, so we call it the agony of humanity. I live in a fallen world. I live in a fallen body. I have an, an old nature that is in conflict with a new nature, and I grow. And you know what? You have ups and downs. You know I can do real well, and then I blew it. Okay. And and holiness is also it something that we grow in, and mature in, and develop. We call the first the instantaneous making holy justification. That's a doctrinal term that Martin Luther just embraced. Just justified. Yes, made holy. Then the progressive part. We we use the term sanctification which means the ongoing growing process of God changing my life and we're all in that we're all in that you know what I'm I'm not what I ought to be I'm still growing you're still growing and we as a church family will grow together okay that's why we talk about these things we, we work through them then the last the third part of holiness is what we call glorification and that is when I get to heaven And I have a new body, and my surroundings are perfect, my body is perfect, and I see Him, and I'm like Him, for I see Him as He is. Last night, pulling into the drive, we get a phone call from a dear friend of ours, and his voice is failing. He's dying of cancer and probably has two or three days to live. And uh, you might know Glenn Hampton. Glenn was with us uh, years ago here in Denver. And he said, you know, Pastor, he said, I am so excited about seeing Jesus. You know, he's lost a lot of weight. He used to be a 200-pound strong wrestler, lost all his weight, lost his voice. He said, I'm so excited about seeing Christ. And that's the hope that we have. So holiness is something that has been done, settled, finished. It is something ongoing in my life. I'm holy. I'm becoming holy. And it is something that we get excited about, that our future, death does not keep us. We've been liberated. So this is his audience to the holy people. And then he includes overseers and deacons, which I'll not get into too much, but... What I've noticed about these churches, singular church, plurality of deacons, and plurality of overseers. Overseer is the same word for pastor, bishop, shepherd. And so there's a plurality of pastors and deacons. These are the two offices in the church. And then, uh, for sake of time, let me just hit the greeting, because I think the greeting is grace. He he, he said, great, it is grace. (laughs) Verse 2 says, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, here's what's really interesting. The common Jewish greeting would be what? Shalom. You've heard that before? Shalom. What's that mean? Peace. The common Greek greeting would also be, in their language, irene, peace. But not grace, peace. Everyone in this world is looking for peace. Peace of mind, peace of life, contentment, happiness, joy. Everyone is looking for that. Grace is the means. Peace is the end. You can't find peace apart from grace. And you know what? There is probably not a word that defines Paul's life, his theology, his teaching, everything, more than this word grace grace it's not keeping the law it's not doing what you can do it's not improving your image it's not accomplishing things and being real religious it's grace and we need to realize that we're saved and have eternal life by grace and we live this life by grace and someday we'll be in heaven and that's his grace and grace defined everything about Paul. The grace of God saved him when he was just a wretched sinner. The grace of God helped him when he described his thorn in the flesh crying out to God. The grace of God adorned his words when he spoke to people. He said, let your be words be filled with grace. And you know something for this church, which should be characteristic of everything we do, is grace that is the supernatural working of god by christ in your heart and life and the result one of those results will be peace another one which is the theme of philippians you know what it is is joy so joy and peace are not the things you pursue it is grace that you pursue and Christ that you pursue. And the result of that is joy and peace. That's why and joy and peace are part of the fruit of the spirit. How can you tell a person's a Christian? How do you tell a person's a Christian? It should be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are works of grace. So my prayer is this, as we dive into this book, th- this is probably more practical, more relevant than it's ever been throughout human history. Because while the world wants happiness, and notice I didn't say happiness, because happiness is, can be circumstantial. Hap comes from the word uh, chance. So if I have great circumstances, I am a happy man. But Paul is writing from prison. And He is so full of joy. So how can it be that that we can go through this life with all of the junk, all the problems, all the failures, all of our difficulties, and our lives are so marked by joy and peace that is not tied to our circumstances? It's God's grace. And this is what Paul has experienced, and this is what he teaches, and this is what he brings into our lives. Now, I know this. This, uh, this coming week we're going to face all kinds of difficulties every person here every family here and it's going to want to rob you of your joy and when we can find where we place our confidence it can change and that's what is so unique about Paul here you got a guy in jail he's going to get executed and all he talks about is joy He's, he's he's a man who's just so full and he's so content and he's so at peace. And that's the way God wants every Christian to live. Let's bow together as we pray. As our heads are bowed and I really don't know what you've experienced this past week and none of us know what we're going to experience, but God's grace has been given for you, not just to save you and give you eternal life, but God's grace has been given for you to live and to hope. And our prayer is this, is that when you center your focus on Christ and what He's done for you and call to Him, He will bring about that kind of joy and peace that only He can do and will mark your life being touched by grace as we conclude would you pray that prayer to the Lord Lord help me this week help me to get my focus back on you Lord help me not to be focused on my the junk going on the circumstances the pain the disappointment but to focus with thanksgiving for what you've done for me and to know that, help me grow, Lord. Help me grow. To understand. To know your grace. Lord, I pray for each of us because we struggle. Intellectually, we say we believe it, but we still struggle with it. And I pray that you'd help us to get our focus right, that this mind would be in us that was in Christ Jesus. And it's because we prayed in his name. Jesus Amen.
1: All right, thank, thank you so much, Matt. Three and a, a little over three years ago we began Valley Community Church by the grace of God and it's been a theme um, that we have stressed uh, almost every Sunday. God's grace, and uh, I, I just don't think it's by accident that God led Matt to that passage and to this book for our church family. Um, you know, your, your spouse needs grace. Your children need grace. Um, and, and you know what? You need grace, and I need grace. It is the key. It is the key to Christian living. I'm so thankful uh, for the message this morning. Uh, as we conclude our service today, we're going to be taking our offering here in just a minute We're so grateful for all of you who continue to give and support the work. And obviously, this is a huge step of faith, bringing on the Olsons, And uh, it is a step of faith for them as well as for us. And we're looking forward to God um, showing how He will provide. And He does that through His people. And uh, so we're grateful to all of you and your continued support. Um, But also, as we, uh, men, you can go ahead and come forward. As we take the offering, we do want to give honor to whom honor is due as well. Uh, This morning, just say thank you to those of you that have served our country in the military. Uh, We are grateful. And so we do have a a, a tribute as uh, we take the offering that we'll we'll show. Uh, But we are thankful for you and your families and the sacrifices that have been made and uh, your desire to serve our country.